0: Definitely a bit of a throwback, and as conglomerate passes started to dominate the landscape, and are you know definitely have a presence here in Utah. I know early on that was going to kind of be the death knell of small ski areas, and everyone was wondering what was going to happen. How do you compete with that? And I think we really saw the opposite. And I think there's some people that were looking for a little different experience, and we say at Beaver Mountain that we're 90% mountain, 10% resort, and really at our core, that's what we are as a ski hill.
1: Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, back to Utah today. First, your reminder to please go and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. The podcast is a lot of fun, but the newsletter is the heart of the storm. The storm skiing newsletter was the first source in the entire country to break down the 2022 to 23 icon epic mountain collective indie new england and power pass offerings yes the first in the entire united states in fact my story on 2022 to 23 epic passes dropped two hours before Vale's own press release so if you want in on the world of lift surf skiing, that is how you get there at stormskiing.com on the StormSkiing Newsletter that comes directly to your email inbox. For breaking news, you can also follow along with the Storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. All right, a word from my partners. First up, spot. Let's face it, if you're a skier, you run the risk of getting hurt. And what's worse than wiping out? massive er bills not to mention less time on the slopes that's why spot partners with some of the biggest names in the ski industry like icon pass telluride taos and more to offer custom injury coverage with lift tickets and season passes spot easily plugs into your checkout flow and does all the heavy lifting to ensure your skiers are covered If your guests get hurt, a spot policy can pay up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. When your skiers are safe from massive medical costs, they spend more time on the mountain without the fear of an injury holding them back. And that's peace of mind they won't find anywhere else. So visit stormskiing.getspot.com to partner with SPOT and show your community that you have their back when things go sideways. To all skiers, make sure your home mountain has SPOT so you're not blindsided by medical bills if you wipe out because that's painful enough. Learn more at stormskiing.getspot.com. That's stormskiing.getspot.com. And of course, I am still proud to partner with Mountain Gazette Issue 196 is just incredible. Photo galleries exploring the Cascades, powder skiing in my home, New York City. Essays on snowboarding a Zen, Alaskan expeditions, and Mammoth Mountain founder, Dave McCoy. There's even a little crash course and expose on the amazing and mysterious Coyote. And of course, a moving look at skiing in Afghanistan before the country fell to the Taliban, but hey, Don't just listen to me, listen to my man at Isaac underscore Gardner on Twitter. Here's what he said upon receiving his issue. Quote, I had heard the hype from at Storm Ski Journal, but this is more beautiful and even more appealing than I had imagined. Thanks at Skiing Rogi, thanks so very much. I need this this season and for many more. And quote, don't miss the next one. Subscribe now. Enter code gohire 10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions over at MountainGazette.com. This code is only valid for listeners of the storm Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go hire. Episode 78 Travis Seeholzer, third generation owner and mountain operations manager of Beaver Mountain, Utah. So check this out. Not only is Beaver Mountain one of the oldest ski areas in America, but it also holds the title for longest ski area owned by a single family. Beaver Mountain was founded by a man named Harry Seeholzer back in 1939. That's before World War II and the great ski area boom that followed. And probably before just about anyone listening to this was born. Just think about that for a minute. How remarkable that is. How many families do you know that have even lived in the same town for that long? Or have even owned property or a home for that long? Or how many American businesses have made it that long? Not very many. So how is one family over going on four generations kept the lifts spinning for 83 years at a ski area that has no snowmaking and is dwarfed by its neighbors closer to Salt Lake City. It's an amazing story, and I am so pumped to share it with you today. Let's go. My guest today is the third-generation owner and mountain operations manager of Beaver Mountain, Utah. Beaver Mountain receives an average of more than 400 inches of annual snowfall, and has 48 runs spread across 828 skiable acres, served by six lifts on a 1,700-foot vertical drop. Beaver Mountain was founded by Harry Seaholzer in 1939, and has been in the Seaholzer family ever since, making it the oldest ski area in the United States, continuously owned by a single family. Travis Seaholzer is my guest. Travis, so glad we could finally make this happen. Welcome to the program.
0: I appreciate it, Stuart. I know we uh, had a few struggles getting connected, but uh, I'm excited. I'm, a, I'm definitely a fan of the show.
1: Well, we're, we're here now, and, and that's the important part, and thank you very much for saying that, Travis. I want to start, first of all, just to ask you, how has the season gone so far at Beaver Mountain? How close are you to that 400-inch annual average? <laughs>
0: we have a ways to go. Um, I think we're sitting somewhere around 240 to 50 inches for the year. And that, that's maybe a little, uh, a little under, you know, an accurate claim through the fall, but we had a, a big, big storm that was very timely at the end of the Christmas break into early January. And we received close to 80 inches, I think in around five days. And then it really didn't snow for a month. So, um, it's interesting because I always try to get my, my groomers as paranoid as I am. And, and it's uh, it's a line I've used before about you may, you have to treat it like it may not snow for a month when reality-wise that really doesn't happen in Utah, but it kind of did this year. And then we, about a week and a half ago, closer to two weeks, I guess, we got a, a three-foot storm, which again was, was very, very timely for us. So uh, snowfall is definitely not as consistent as we're used to, but the reasonably colder temperatures have helped out a lot with our snowpack and we've we've stayed covered and our numbers are are definitely good our clientele are snow snobs and we're <laughs> definitely down a little bit from last year when we kind of got our blows doors blown off during covid um, but it's been strong really for kind of surprisingly for the the lack of snow that we've had
1: I'm glad to hear that and glad to hear that Northern Utah can deal with the snow drought once in a while. I, I don't feel too bad for you, Travis, to be honest with you, because 240 still sounds pretty good from where I'm sitting here on the East Coast. But, uh, but I know you're used to a lot of snow out there and, and you've had a long, long time to get used to it. The ski area, as I mentioned, has been in your family since 1939. I mean, this is just mind blowing to me, Travis, that there's a ski area that has been independent and family owned by the same family for that long, so let's just go back to the beginning and tell this story. Your grandfather Harry, who was born in 1902, founded Beaver Mountain. Tell us what you know or what you remember about your grandfather Harry.
0: Um, I actually never met my grandpa Harry. Um, he passed away a couple of years before I was born, um, fairly fairly young, and definitely know a lot of uh, stories and history about him. But it's um, it's always been a big regret that I never had a chance to meet him. Um, and my grandma, Luella, his wife, was was uh, his right-hand partner through all this. And she was a, a prominent factor in my my youth and was kind of the matriarch of the mountain. And, and she survived him by probably 25-plus years. Um, so, um, as I mentioned, Harry, Harry passed away fairly young. But I, uh, I've heard a lot of stories, and we have a lot of pictures of him, and it's, it's kind of crazy how much he looks like um, a couple of my cousins um, on my, my dad's side of the family. But Luella was, was really instrumental in working hand-in-hand hand with him in those days, and it's, um, it's interesting, you know, the question of, of why he founded the ski area and why he did that, um, it was I know the family talking to my my dad and my uncles, aunts and uncles, you know, they were quite poor during that era and post-depression and really survived on game, venison, ducks, geese. They were, were big outdoor people and hunted and fished a lot. But a lot of that was literally what they were subsisting on. And Harry did surveys, water surveys, or I should say snowpack surveys for the water folks. In the surrounding mountains, and obviously, you know, in the early twenties, teens, there weren't a lot of people in the mountains in the winter. And he was, uh, he and a buddy did a lot of a lot of that in their teenage years, and would go out on eight day hitches through the mountains and survey the snowpack. And they also did some property management in Logan Canyon. Logan Canyon, which is beaver mountain is twenty seven miles from Logan, Utah, up that canyon, only opened for year round traffic in nineteen thirty eight and so prior to that, the summer homes that some of them were were over twenty miles up the canyon were inaccessible all winter, so they would act as uh, you know property managers and go shovel snow off the roofs of these summer homes and just make sure everything was okay with them but it was you know, obviously, a different era, and it's hard to get your brain around um, how things were in those times, and that you would just walk through the mountains for eight days with eight foot pine <laughs> skis on your feet, and you know the lack of, of gear that we're used to. Um, but I, that's really where the location came from, was through those forays into the woods and, and finding out where a good snowpack was. And there's there's a lot of a longer story about that and a couple possible locations, but uh, a couple of the Ingen brothers were pretty instrumental in selecting the location and seemed to be everywhere, but they did spend some time in Northern Utah with my my grandparents as well.
1: So you mentioned, Travis, that your grandparents were not necessarily people of means, but somehow they were able to open that ski area in 1939. And As you said, the world was very different back then, and, and it's hard for us to really wrap our mind around how things worked, separated now. By almost a century. But once they identified that location, do you have a sense of how your grandma and grandpa were able to acquire or at least gain access to that land to be able to develop it for the ski area in Open Beaver Mountain?
0: Yeah, so at the time it was um, the current location was federal land or Forest Service property. And they actually were at the current location with a small rope tow for a couple seasons. And then moved a little further up the canyon to an area that's known as the Sinks, or they called it Summit Valley when they were skiing there. And in some of my research and um, looking back on the history, I really wasn't sure why that move happened for a while. I'm I'm definitely glad they came back to the current location because it's a, a much smaller venue. It's basically a tubing hill now for locals, but... I think the reason was the road into the current base area of Beaver Mountain didn't exist. And so everyone that wanted to ski there walked in or skied in over a mile to the base to where the tow was and eventually, you know, the base area and the ski lifts. And so they were there for a couple years and then moved back. And it was really at that time that the decision was made to to move forward with this in partnership with the Forest Service Logan City was involved at that time, and they took proposals from different uh, potential operators. And I think it was a pretty intense discussion with the family and a big decision. And my my grandpa gathered his children together and his wife, and they they kind of made this decision as a family and a group. Are we are we willing to do this? And he was he was a lather by trade and. And, and still continued to do that for years once they were running the ski area because there was obviously not a lot of revenue <laughs> coming in at that time. Um, you know, a, a true labor of love, and, you know, for years and years, there there was not, I don't think, much of a sustainable income, but they were able to continue and, and grow and eventually, um, you know, get to where we are today. But I think it was a, a very joint decision by the family and was not done lightly at the time because they were kind of casting their lot in with, With that concept, which, you know, she mentioned, there wasn't a lot of that going on in those days. And, you know, eventually my dad's older brother, Loyal, you know, shortly thereafter, he served in the 10th Mountain Division in the war and then came back and and continued to work with the family in the ski area. But it was it was all of my dad's siblings and eventually their spouses that spent time there and all worked um, really continuously until a couple of them kind of had their own careers later on.
1: Yeah, let's anchor this in time a little bit, Travis, because if you go to 1939, that is right before World War II, and if you look at the history of the founding of ski areas in the United States, the great majority of them came online after World War II, when all those 10th Mountain Division veterans returned from Europe, and they brought this passion for skiing into into the new Virginia U.S. ski industry. So what inspired your grandfather in 1939, when this really wasn't a mainstream thing to do? to start a ski area? <laughs> that
0: is a great question. And I, <laughs> uh, I have some theories, but I don't, I've never really understood. I think really it's sort of the kind of people that they were. I don't know that it was necessarily the sport of skiing at that time, but, you know, very, um, motivated, adventurous, outdoors people that spend a lot of time, you know, as I mentioned in the mountains, hunting and fishing and recreating and, um, that just seemed to be kind of the common theme with with both of my grandparents, and also my my great grandpa, who was the uh, the conservation officer or a fish cop back in those days. But I, I really think it was driven more by kind of the I don't know if adventure is necessarily the right term, but the challenge of doing something different. And one thing that always amazed me about kind of the people of that generation here locally. As I mentioned, the canyon was only open for a year for winter traffic before they they actually had a lift up and were skiing. And that was always amazing to me how on the trigger they were. I mean, it happened so quickly. Like, we can get up there and let's go ski. Where prior to that, all the skiing had been just kind of on the foothills. Um, and at Utah State University, you had a place called Old Main Hill that, uh, you know, probably has 80 feet of vertical and that's where where people started skiing, but they were just so quick to move up the canyon, and there was a lot of support and um, just a lot of uh, very motivated people to make that happen. And I really feel like with my family, that's kind of the uh, the reason that they did that. You know, I, I think they were still figuring out what skiing was, and we have a, a photo of my grandpa with his first, and this is the quote on there. It was written first botton skis. And it was in uh, 1919, I believe. And they were, they looked to be close to eight foot pine skis. And eventually prior to that, he had just made his own and he would shape them and bend them. And they were uh, fairly fragile. It sounded like he went through a lot of skis in that process and broke a lot of skis. And he was not a big man, but, um, you know, they were figuring it out at that time. And I think as of, as were people all across this country, we're all kind of figuring out what that meant. And so back to that question, I, I think it was really just kind of the outdoor spirit and wanting to do something new. And obviously once they, they started sliding on snow, they realized that was something that they really enjoyed.
1: It's amazing to think back on that and how it started and the fact that it's persisted across more than 80 years now. You know, if you dig deep enough into the history of these places, Travis, a lot of times you see a lot of experimentation, some name changes has beaver mountain always been called beaver mountain and do you know why it's called that
0: yeah it's really excuse me it's just uh more of a geographical name i think it was it pre-existed the ski area by years on maps and i don't know when they when they named it that it's kind of like uh sheep creek i guess everywhere you go there's a sheep creek um but there was nothing that really tied it to to the eventual eventual ski operation that was there it was it was strictly a, a geographical name. The there's a small feeder stream to the Logan River there called Beaver Creek that uh, is is similar for the same reason. And Beaver Creek actually starts in Idaho, Beaver Mountain. Our northern boundary is within um, just over a half mile from the Idaho border, which um, mm-hmm. kind of surprises a lot of people because Logan, Utah, isn't that close. But Logan Canyon travels a little further north than a lot of people realize, and so. We, we kind of refer to ourselves as being in Southern Idaho at times, and that's kind of changed recently, but we're we're the great white north of Utah and a smaller ski area comparably to uh, you know the bigger resorts around the Wasatch and sometimes the Forgotten area of Utah. but um, we we do still get you know real similar snow to what everybody else does in Utah and and have, have been able to to keep growing. but um, Beaver Mountain has been there. I think, far before the ski area existed.
1: Mm -hmm. So it sounds like your grandfather found a really nice spot and really established the ski area. And your grandmother played a big role in that as well. At some point, your father, Ted, took over Beaver Mountain. So tell us about your father and when he actually took over operations there.
0: I think it was, excuse me, roughly, you know, probably 66, 67, 68 with, with my grandpa's early passing, um, I think my dad took over at a, a fairly young age and and I think was kind of running things prior to that because my grandpa was sick for a while. And so uh, my dad, Ted, was a, a force of nature. Um, anybody in the ski industry in this part of the world, in the Intermountain region um, that met him, I think would would definitely attest to that and somewhat of a... A throwback, I guess, a very straightforward um, man, and I, I did have someone tell me, and you would maybe appreciate this, that they really appreciated my my father's bluntness, <laughs> because it was a little more like where he grew up on the East Coast, which sometimes is a little different than you see out out here. But um, really, I think sheer force of will. You know, those were probably the the real critical times. To establish a business, I mean, obviously the founding in the early days, but you kind of get in that time frame. And that his his time at the mountain was probably when a lot of these mom poski areas kind of disappeared for one way or another. And the the corporation, as it were, was my dad and his siblings, and my my grandpa set it up that way. So he worked with uh, his two sisters and brother in at the ski area and you know eventually took it over from them. But they were all really instrumental in that and their their kids all worked at the mountain. And most of my cousins were a little older than me. And they had a, a tight knit group that all skied and worked and played together. But you know, one common theme in this operation is we definitely all got our chance to work. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. And okay.
0: you know, we do enjoy it and everybody loved to ski and got to ski, but there was there was just always a lot of work to do. And I think that's why we were able to, to kind of survive through those years and also very, very fiscally conservative. Um, you know, the ski area in those days obviously had some debt. We try to avoid that these days. Um, but I know my parents and my aunts and uncles all had several mortgages on their homes at one point to keep the ski area afloat in those days. And, you know, I always kind of joke that we got the easy part of the job, you know, that's <laughs> really tough back then. And, You know, there's definitely challenges now and a lot of work, but, uh, you know, we're paying the bills and and feeling pretty good about that. But in those days, it was a a different animal. And I always kind of made fun of my dad because he always told the stories about walking to school uphill both directions. And that's the way (laughs) stories about the ski area were. But the reality is it was kind of true. And, you know, walking up the mountain to fall one tree with a handsaw. And it's just kind of hard to fathom. Some of the work that was done. I just recently realized through um, a presentation I had done that they built the day lodge and built a parking lot and installed a chairlift all in one summer. Oh my gosh. Um, which that summer of work would frighten me now, you know, much less <laughs> right. those days with just a handful of guys really and limited equipment. And it's it was kind of mind boggling and it was, it was mentioned in my grandma's memoirs and she, Mm -hmm. she said the boys were very tired that year when they came out of the Canyon and it seemed like they really (laughs) probably didn't leave much. They didn't have a lot of life other than what they were doing, but they pulled it off. And, uh, you know, we, we are the beneficiaries of that at at this point.
1: So let's pause here in the mid sixties, Travis, when your father took over from your grandfather who had established the business, run it for a couple of years. But as you mentioned, the 1960s, 1970s through the early 80s was kind of a weed out period where ski areas either modernized or died. And Beaver Mountain obviously is one that pulled through to the modern era. But what did it look like when your father took over, if, if you have a, a sense of that? And how did he improve the ski area over the years and evolve it to the point where it was ready for you to be the modern ski area that it is today?
0: Well, facility-wise at that time, um, there were two double chairlifts, our Little Beaver lift and the Beaver facelift, which uh, the facelift was a a PAMA for the most part, and Little Beaver was a minor Denver chairlift, and our Day Lodge, which was a a classic A-frame lodge, still is, with several additions. I think now we're up to four different additions on that structure through the years, and the original day lodge prior to that was what is now our ticket office. So obviously it is a very, very old building. Um and it's hard to fathom that, you know, that was the lodge at that time. And and, and during that era, stepping back just a little bit to um when my grandfather was still alive, my grandma made soup and sandwiches, and they would uh just gather around the potbelly stove in in what is now is the ticket office. And you know, that was lunch, but, um, probably the, the real key shortly after my grandfather's passing was the completion of Harry's dream lift, which obviously was named after Harold C. Holzer and was completed a couple of years after his passing. And it was always his goal and dream to get a chairlift to the top of Beaver Mountain. And that's what Harry's dream does, um, today is it gets, gets us to the top and, um, it, it's definitely the workhorse of the mountain, and you know we can get into some of the other chairlifts since then. But um, that that chairlift has been modified since then. But at that point, you know, we went from from two double chairlifts to the third one, and then during my dad's tenure, you know, we upgraded um, two of those lifts again, and then installed Marge's triple, which is Beaver Mountain's only satellite or ski to chairlift which was new terrain for us at that time and you know prior to harry's dreamlift being in the facelift kind of runs parallel to it but it doesn't go as high and the skiers would would actually hike to the top of the mountain and ski down you know in the mid-60s prior to the dreamlift being completed and they used to race down what is now the lift line for harry's hollow held a lot of college races Um, Utah State University, the U of U and the Intermountain, um, the other universities in the Intermountain region. And all those racers would just walk up to the top of the race course, which was probably an additional, you know, 400 vertical feet and a little topography in between. But, um, you know, it's always encouraging. I think for us, we feel like sometimes we move slowly with expansion and with our conservative nature but when we talk to guests and and locals that have have not been there for a number of years they're always astounded at the changes and the little things that we've continued to improve upon and you know we've never bit off uh, big apples at a time but we're able to to continue and, and add amenities for the guests and upgrade the chair lifts and, and and keep things moving and and a lot of that happened during during my dad's tenure obviously and and again I think it's due to the conservative nature of the family and, you know, fiscal conservative conservatism and not spending too money and get too far extended. It's, uh, as everyone in this industry knows, you know, we always say mother nature can be a bad business partner. And sometimes (laughs) we feel like we're worse than farmers and without any, any snowmaking at our mountain, we literally sit around and wait for it to snow and it generally does. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it's, it's a yin yanger. It's good and bad to be that tied into weather and the natural environment, but I think it's also very stressful. It was stressful for my parents through the years, counting on snow all the time, and, you know, I try not to obsess over it, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. So um, definitely pay attention to the weather, but uh, I think that was, was one thing with my dad. He was always worried about, if we didn't have winter, if we had a down year, how would you survive a year where you really didn't operate? Mm-hmm. And so there was always that thought in in the back of everyone's heads, as far as, you know, getting leverage too far, spending too much money in those days.
1: So I'm not sure where you were born exactly in all this, Travis, or how distinctly you have firsthand memories of a lot of the things that you just described, but what was that like for you to grow up at Beaver Mountain and to watch this ski area Evolve and and to know that that's your family's and and to essentially have this be your backyard through childhood. Just take us into that world.
0: Um, I think I and my kids are a little bit the same way. Maybe didn't appreciate how unique it was because it's kind of all I've ever known. Um, I mean it it is forefront in my family's life. You know, obviously it's a a job, I guess you could say, but. beaver mountain through you know all the generations of the seaholzer family was was at the forefront of everything we did and it was it was a great childhood it was great to be able to do that and i i kind of joke about you know my kids don't know other kids don't get to jump in a snowcat and drive up a mountain and cut a christmas <laughs> tree down and uh, maybe go get some turns pre-season prior to the mountain opening up or post-season after we close um and again, as I referenced earlier, everyone, I think, was uh, was asked to pitch in and do their part. And I, as a teenager and a youth who really enjoyed skiing, I know I would get a little grumpy at times because I'd show up on a ski day and I'd get, get put to work. Um, mm. and I've probably done that to my own children now at this point, <laughs> but uh, used to try to be a little incognito kind of in high school on a powder day and come up and not let anybody know I was there if I was sloughing school and Usually my dad would sniff me out and I'd end up working somewhere, but, uh, (laughs) you know, it's a fine line and I think we've all enjoyed, uh, playing and, and being able to recreate and the obvious love for, for skiing. Um, you know, one interesting memory when, when people have asked me this before, and this is a little, little odd, but one thing I always associate as a kid going up to the mountain was hearing post hole pounders. And in those mm-hmm. days, all of our mazes were built with T posts and PVC pipes over them and maze rope. And that's just one memory I have as a little kid of going to the mountain. I can just hear post hole pounders every morning as I was there. Because my ride, I would go with my mother, Marge, at, uh, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock. That's when my ride left as a, as a kid to go skiing, me and my younger brother, Corey. And so we would we would be there very early and we'd go hang out with the lifties and eat breakfast with the lifties and talk to the groomers. And, um, but that, that was a lot of, it, it was just those early, early rides up the Canyon with, with both my mom and my grandma. My grandma continued to work in the ticket office with my mother. And, um, I do remember one real weather day where no doubt now our Canyon would have been closed, but in those mm-hmm. days you just kind of dealt with it. But <sighs> I remember as a and I don't know how old I was, I was probably nine or ten years old, but we were going up the canyon and the road just kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it was really the only time I think I ever heard my mom and my grandma argue because my grandma Luella really wanted my mom to turn around and my mom mm-hmm. Marge was determined she was gonna make it to the ski area. And <laughs> and we did. And uh <laughs> we actually didn't end up operating that day. And it was one of the only days I remember as a kid that we didn't, we, we fully shut down the ski area. We we're very blessed with our location. We don't get a lot of wind um, with our storms, at least it affects chairlifts and operations very often. And it, it can definitely happen, but it, it helps the snow quality as well as the operation. But I remember those two going at it and literally there, there wasn't any road left and it was blowing so hard. And and obviously we've driven that Canyon. I feel like my truck could, could drive it itself without me a lot of times because you know, our family has spent so much time on that drive. And it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's 27 miles from Logan. So it's about a, a 40 minute drive. That is a very nice commute, but it does, does take a while. Um, mm-hmm. but just those early days as, as kids. and And I think You know, more so from my older siblings and their cousins, they had quite a rat pack of of little seaholtzers running around there who most of them still ski today and their kids do. And um, even though they're not as involved in the day-to-day operations, they definitely feel a lot of ownership and and pride in the mountain that they were instrumental in making successful. But it was a a fantastic childhood. and, And I think one thing it did teach me and hopefully my children is that work ethic. That uh, you know these things don't do themselves, and I think our family's always been very hands-on with, uh, you know, not being afraid to, to pitch in and do the work. And still to this day, even as we're bigger, that gets a little more difficult at times, and you get bogged down in the the business side of things. But still, for me, you know, the operation side and being on the ground and doing that is is the attraction more so than. Um, some of the necessities of business and insurance and finance and and those kind of things, but um, it was definitely a, a fantastic place to grow up as a kid.
1: I want to go back to that anecdote about the canyon for a moment, Travis and it, it, it just because it clarifies the front row seat that you've had to the profound changes in Utah culture and Utah ski culture over the past several decades. the Utah has become like a lot of the mountain west very much a place of transplants, right? And you've watched these changes and just the the volume of people that have come West looking for a different lifestyle and a more active lifestyle. So just take us into your point of view for a moment here and help us understand just how much has Northern Utah and Utah skiing changed in your lifetime in very noticeable ways.
0: Well, obviously, I think the the biggest changes have come just in the very near past, um, in just the sheer amount of guests and and people interested. From the Beaver Mountain side of things, we've always been a local ski mountain. We cater to particularly Northern Utah, Cache Valley, and also some of Western Wyoming and Southern Idaho is where the majority of our customers come from. And you know, it's a I don't think I would classify Logan as as a ski town per se, but we definitely have a ton of support and are are very integral, I think, in people's lives in this community that enjoy doing Mm -hmm. that and does give them an option for, you know, winter recreation that is affordable and close to home. Um, And a couple of things have changed. I think both we're growing tremendously in the Valley. There's just a lot of people moving here, as you mentioned, but also I think we are seeing a lot of, guests that are looking for something a little different um, from some of our neighbors to the South. And we're seeing more folks from, you know, the Ogden area and even Salt Lake. And I don't think we were even appreciating it for a while. Um, how many people were, were commuting from the Wasatch front to ski up here and actually spending a night in town and and committing to do that all winter where they would come either stay on the Bear Lake side, east of the ski area or in Logan and, and and ski at Beaver every weekend, and you know they're driving past a lot of world class ski areas to do that. And I think our calling card in particular is is we're cheaper. um We're we're definitely a bit of a throwback, and you know as as conglomerate passes started to to dominate the landscape and are you know definitely have a presence here in Utah. I know early on that was going to kind of be the death knell of small ski areas. And everyone was wondering what was going to happen. How do you compete with that? And I think, you know, it's a little more obvious now, but we were seeing it a few years ago, we really saw the opposite and we saw people kind of moving away from some of those products and just the crowds and the numbers. And, you know, they definitely have their place and it's a great deal if you can utilize, you know, an icon or an Epic pass, but, um, I think there's some people that we're looking for a little different experience. And, you know, we say at Beaver mountain that we're, we're 90% mountain, 10% resort. And really at our core, that's what we are as a ski hill. And there's not a lot of frills. There's not a lot. We don't have spas. We don't have overnight lodging. We, we have really existed on people's winter recreation in Northern Utah for years. And, and we're, we're definitely suffering some growing pains now and we've been, really i think even industry wide kind of unprecedented growth of you know 20 plus percent for several years now wow and we kind of still operate like we did 10 years ago and okay. we we can't continue to do that and we've definitely got some things on the table and uh and you know it's a great problem to have and it's fantastic but we're we're trying to get ahead of it and we have seen you know, we love locals. We love catering to them. It's a nice experience, I think, for our employees and everyone there. You know your customers. They're the same people there every week. But, you know, realistically, that destination guest spends a little more money. But the other side of it is we find their expectations are a little higher as well. And I think we've all been guilty and and identified this in our operation that we kind of assume everyone just understands Beaver Mountain and where do you go and what do you do and that's changed and we've we've tried to help that as well because we do have a lot a lot of guests that have never been there before and that are new to the sport and I think we've done a great job of creating skiers both in our our own market and you know drawing people from elsewhere but a lot of our beginner programs and and things that we do that are Pretty affordable, but we we hope we're growing skiers by that and set that hook, and they continue to to support us in the industry moving forward. But you know, obviously, uh, weather has changed a little bit, and you know we've had good and bad snow years, and it's interesting looking back. You know, the good old days weren't always the good old days with snowfall, but um, you know, obviously things are changing, and we will try to address that to the best of our abilities as well, but. I think the biggest change is is definitely just seeing a lot more people other than our locals that are coming from a lot greater distances. And it's fun to see, and it's really fun to see them enjoy our mountain. And I think that's where we really get the most joy out of it is seeing people enjoy the, the fruits of your labors.
1: So there's a really interesting historical parallel here, Travis, with your father in that, as you mentioned, he took over at a historical inflection point in the 1960s, where if he wouldn't have put that chairlift... To the summit, then who knows if the Scaria would have survived into the modern era. And you set this up as though they gave you the easy part. But in fact, you're actually entering a historical inflection point yourself, as you just outlined, where Beaver Mountain really has to decide what it's going to be and what kind of story it's going to tell. Because as you mentioned, the the Wasatch around. Salt Lake City is getting overloaded. You have really good ski areas there and really good snowfall and really good operators. But the fact is they're down those tight canyons and you can only squeeze so many people into them as the population keeps growing. That creates a lot of opportunity for you, but it also creates a big challenge for you. Right. So so before we get to that piece of it and how you respond to the moment, just take us back here. When did you decide that you wanted to be part of the Beaver Mountain story? and continue your family's legacy, and when did you actually take over and start to do that?
0: Um, I think probably it was always in the cards, and I, when I was younger, uh, during college, um, I was a bit of a vagabond for a while, and um, worked some summers in Alaska, and I was a wildland firefighter, and, um, you know, traveled around a bit, and and saw some things, and, (laughs) Um, I know my, maybe my mother in particular wondered why I wasn't home working at the ski area. Um, but I think it was a nice time to be able to do a few of those things. And I I was definitely back in the winter. I think I have spent every winter at at Beaver Mountain of, of my existence. And, you know, I, I was in a fisheries and wildlife program at Utah state, but I think really the, the writing was always on the wall that I would would eventually work at the ski area, and I I think, you know, when you're younger, you're always exploring a few opportunities and, and seeing what's out there, but I, I don't know that there was ever really anything very seriously contending for what I would do other than, than be at the ski area, and I I actually work with closely with my brother-in-law, who's actually the mountain manager, who's married to my older sister and he is very key in our operation as well. And, and, you know, really the real boss at Beaver mountain to this day is my, my mother, Marge, and she still sells tickets in the ticket office. Um, she is having her 80th birthday, um, next week and she still works probably 65 days or 65 hours at the mountain a week. And, um, I think that's kind of the missing part of this story. She's a legend. Um, here locally and in the ski industry she's very well known in the intermountain region and and by a lot of uh you know folks in the industry and in, in salt lake and the surrounding states but she is uh, a machine and it's it's a neat thing and i think people appreciate when they come to the mountain they are they're purchasing their day pass from the owner of the ski area and she's glad to see him and really her her motivation overall and I mentioned this earlier but she's the one that kind of set that tone of you know it's nice to pay the bills and and we she likes to be you know financially conservative so we can grow the business but it's definitely not about money and her her motivation and her joy comes from people loving to be at Beaver Mountain and she really loves that and to see people come back and and get excited and see the several generations of kids that have grown up skiing at, at her mountain. Um, you know, and a few years ago, my, my wife, Christy was uh, working a little more at the company and we talked to my mom into taking a day off to let Christy work in the ticket office. And she kind of got her back up and said that we weren't putting her out to pasture yet. And we said, well, cutting you back to 60 hours a week isn't really putting you out to pasture, <laughs> but uh, everybody needs a day off. And she's still, um, she drives the canyon, you know, by herself every day. She's usually at the mountain by 615, getting her office ready for the day and um, obviously very involved in the operation and everyone refers to her as the boss. But, you know, operationally, Jeff and I have been kind of handling things for years and even, you know, a couple of years prior to my dad passing away. But my my dad passed away in 2013 and he was 81 years old at the time and and spent a little less time at the mountain, not by his own choice, um, just through some health issues. And, you know, people never, some people really have a hard time understanding my parents because, you know, retiring or putting their feet up just is not in their vocabulary. And, you know, my mom will be at the ski area as long as she possibly can. There's, that's what she does. That's her life. And uh, my dad was the same way. And, they actually, you know, purchased the ski area from his siblings at about the time most people would be looking at retiring. They got to buy the ski area again, and that's when they brought myself and my sister Annette and her husband Jeff and my wife Christy into the corporation um, when uh, the rest of the siblings were ready to, to get out of the business. And, you know, and that was even a little scary at the time. It was a fair amount of debt, which uh, was handled successfully, but... Um, Always kind of joked about buying your your own business again, and you know, as I mentioned, all the the other family are still around the ski area and spend a lot of time there. And it was a very amicable parting, but they were just just done working at that point and moved on to the the next stage of uh, operation for the ski area. Um, but really, I guess I've been kind of hands on since probably you know two thousand ten eleven, the operation side, and still. You know, try to get in a snowcat whenever I can and I do some lift maintenance and we we're kind of at that stage you know operationally as well with the growth that we've had it's harder for everyone to do lots of jobs things are becoming more specialized and we always say we wear a lot of hats and we definitely do and that that hasn't changed entirely but it is becoming harder to do as the the company grows and the numbers get bigger
1: it's just a it's really remarkable when you step back and you explain it that way and all the different people from your family that have had an interest in making this place thrive and survive over the years just talk about a couple things here Travis one is is just the culture that your family's established and and what you've learned from them about creating a successful business and how important that cultural piece of it and, and the other thing is just the pride in knowing that your family your family's name has been on the masthead here at Beaver Mountain for 83 years, which is, which is really literally unprecedented in the American ski business. So just lay that out for us and, and in that whole family dynamic and how that plays out over the generations and, and the sort of sense of responsibility you keep, you feel to keep that going.
0: Well, I think a lot of it to the culture question and, and the relationships with, with the guests and the locals, um, is you know, I, I really appreciate the relationships in this industry, both within the industry and and fellow ski area operators and people that work there, but also with our, our guests that have supported us through the years. And, you know, that's really the payback. And I think, I think most of us that work in this world, and I, I would assume you would agree that, um, you know, mountain people are good people and especially ski area people. It's just a little different breed of folks that, uh, Patronize ski areas and like to play in the mountains and and this crazy thing that we do that, you know, there's these million dollar investments in these resorts just so people can slide down a mountain on frozen water um, and bring great joy to people in that process. Um, But there, there definitely is a lot of pride there and and definitely a little pressure to keep up that mantle. Um, And I, I think that's going well, but I think, uh, you know, it's, boils down to with the family, how they've treated people and the relationships they've had and, you know, the appreciation of the guests for the the product that we've been able to pull off. And we have a saying at Beaver Mountain that uh it's your mountain. And, you know, through the years, I noticed with our, our ski patrol and ski patrol meetings, these guys would always say, talking to me, they would say your mountain and we want to help protect you and do what we need to do for your mountain. And, and frankly, that. <laughs> that always made me a little uncomfortable as like, it's not my mountain, you know, it's everybody's mountain. And I think <laughs> we all share that ethos. Um, you know, we, we make the lifts turn and, and hopefully provide a good product for everybody. But a lot of our guests feel in ownership in the the ski area, which is great. It's challenging at times because they have opinions and we are very accessible to people and um, that can be good and bad at times, but just that overall culture of everyone having some ownership there I think is, is fantastic and is really kind of our calling card and what's, what's helped us be successful through the years.
1: Travis, do you, as you look into the future here, do you share your parents drive to work and continue to work until that's the end? And, and, and looking into your crystal ball, do you have a sense for the next generation of sea and whether they are interested in carrying on this family legacy?
0: That is a very good question. Um, (laughs) I, I have a hard time picturing myself working that much till I'm 80 years old, but, um, it is also kind of hard to visualize stepping away and not be involved in, in some form or fashion. Um, as far as the family continuing the legacy, that's still a bit up in the air and there there's, there's definitely another generation that has spent their time working in various uh, positions there, either through, you know, why they're in college or, you know, starting families or, um, even, you know, a lot of, a lot of my kids or a couple of my kids and Jeff and Annette's kids have worked at the mountain since they were young and in different capacities. Um, So I guess the answer is, I hope so. Um, You know, there's definitely no motivation to sell the ski area or there's, there's definitely been some opportunities there. And I don't think that's really on the table at all. It's, you know, people have asked me that before and it's really never been a consideration. Um, And I guess you never say never, but as far as, you know, why we're still able and it's still snowing and, and doing what we're doing, I think we'll be a part of Beaver Mountain. And as far as the next generation, that kind of is a TBD. remains to be seen, you know, what the kids decide to do. There's, there's no firm plans at this point, but uh, definitely hopeful that it can stay in the family in one shape or another and, and continue with um, kind of the, the motivation behind it and, and the success that Beaver Mountain has
1: had. It sounds like you have quite a long tenure ahead of you, and and I want this is when I want to go back to that competitive narrative that we spoke about earlier, and the challenges that you're facing. So, you know, if you're looking from the outside, it might look like Beaver Mountain is in a pretty tough spot because you look down the state, you have Alta, you have Snowbird, you have Park City, you have Deer Valley, you have Snow Basin, these really amazing world class resorts, some of the best snow in the world in Utah. Uh, some really well-capitalized operators that can market the hell out of these things. However, it, it sounds like Beaver Mountain is doing really, really well in spite of having to fight it out with all of these mega mountains. And, and in fact, it sounds like your challenge now is how do you evolve Beaver Mountain to meet this moment and and meet the expectations of some of these guests that may be coming up from these places, but are, are beaten down by the crowds and the Megapass and the tourists and everything else. So, so how are you approaching this? How do you figure out how how to tell Beaver Mountain's story in this day to to cater to those sort of guests without becoming this thing that they're escaping from?
0: Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head, and we struggle with that ourselves um, as we're growing to keep our identity, um, stay true to our roots, and, and realize who our customer is and what our market is and it's a fine line at times and we definitely want to stay current and stay relevant, both, you know, facilities and on mountain and the guest experience, even though we're a smaller operation considerably. And, and, and I have huge respect for all these areas you mentioned. I know a lot of folks involved with uh, with most of them and the challenges that they have and they have great operations. Um, You know, everybody's feeling that pinch a bit and, but we are, we are definitely growing substantially. And I, you know, for the multiple reasons that I mentioned, but I think that is is kind of the kicker in that conversation is how do you sustain that growth and, and remain competitive, but also keep that identity because that's why people are there and, and they maybe don't want to see you turn into something you're not. And, but still, um, you know, remain competitive in that industry. And we are looking at a a fairly substantial base area expansion. Um, and that has been at the forefront of a lot of these discussions. Um, the one new facility that we're looking at has been dubbed Marge's cabin by our partners and designers. And I think they have a good handle on who we are and where we want to, want to go and replacing Marge's ticket office, you know, with a modern facility, but we, uh, we know what we want that to look like and, and how that's going to function at our ski area, but we definitely have a, a huge dearth of inside space at Beaver and are trying to help that out for the guest service experience. And I think it's the typical spots, you know, parking, everyone has parking issues. We are addressing parking, um, food and beverage and rental and ski school are our real challenges right now with the growth that we've seen. And, um, you know, we have some great managers, um, in all of these departments that have done amazing things with definitely subpar and undersized facilities. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's kind of mind boggling. Um, our rental shop manager in particular, what he's done with the small space he has. And we find him in every closet and every unused storage spot <laughs> on the mountain. You know, here's Dave in here with some skis and, you know, during, uh, the, the summer of COVID and the planning and everything, you know, I'd hear these skiers say, Oh, we're, we're repurposing this 20,000 square foot children's center into this and I'm going, yeah, what are we going to repurpose into <laughs> a taco stand somewhere? We just don't have any excess space and we are addressing that. And I think it's a good plan, you know, over the next couple of years, we feel like that's kind of our, uh, you know, those are our bottlenecks at this point, the mountain for the most part handles things pretty well. Um, and if we can deal with these, these bottlenecks there, as far as the operation goes, um, I think we'll be in a in a far better position.
1: When you look at those things you just mentioned, Travis tickets rentals, how much is it a space issue, and how much is it a technology issue? I think we've really seen the rise of some pretty slick platforms these days that that have infiltrated the ski business, which has not traditionally been the most anxious to get the new technology. But I, I think we're seeing it scale to the point where smaller ski areas can take advantage of these sorts of things. So what, what sorts of, of plays have you made into technology and, and how big of a part of the equation? Do you see that as you look to streamline operations, just keep people moving through the machine?
0: It's, it's obviously very key. Um, change is difficult. And especially at a place like Beaver mountain, we are definitely low tech and, um, we have implemented this is our uh, third season with an RFID season pass which was quite a a big change for our operation and for our guests and I think it has has definitely been successful as I mentioned there's there's challenges changes difficult both for your guests and for our operation um, definitely have a lot of uh, analog employees <laughs> okay. um, from, you know, other generations, we do still sell a, a paper ticket that sticks on a wicket for a day pass okay. and that will continue here for, for a while. But things are obviously changing and, um, you know, technology can be a huge help, but it also can I find myself spending a lot of time on IT, which is not Mm. where I want to be. And I think that's getting better. You know, that's the point. And and hopefully technology makes your life easier. But I've been a little concerned as we get a little fragmented in different departments that, you know, we want to streamline things. And I think that's the goal of all ski areas to have systems that uh, work well together or, you know, one system. And I think we're on the path to that. Um, in the meantime, we've become a little more fragmented with the idea that it's all coming back to center shortly with different departments, but the RFID season pass has been, been huge. It was very timely for us launching that right when the pandemic hit because our e-commerce platform was much better at that time. And, Um, we implemented payment plans for season passes, which we were heroes for doing that. And it was really just dumb luck. The timing happened to coincide with this new platform and people really appreciated that in our, our very, uh, I say cost conscious market here in Northern Utah. Um, but it, it worked out really well and there's, there's still challenges with that. Um, but I think, you know, kind of the modern ticket office or the the postmodern ticket office we've always known is just changing in our world. And, you know, my mother loves to be in her ticket office and people actually that have season passes still come down to visit her. They don't necessarily okay. need to come buy a day ticket, but they want to come see Marge. So they're going to come <laughs> down and see her. And I tell her that all the time. You know, the role may change slightly, but, um, you know, it's still very important. And that personal touch, I think, is is what you don't want to lose with the advent of technology and and growing and that's what she's very good at and really, really likes. She likes to answer the phone and talk to people and make herself accessible. Um, so we don't want it to become impersonal, but there's definitely a lot of uh, value in, in what technology can do for you.
1: Interesting dynamic with the RFID season pass, but the wicket ticket for day skiers. Talk about why you've kept that model. Um, really because of the lady in the ticket office, to be honest. Okay. <laughs>
0: Um, you know, and it, it dawned on me a year or two ago that, um, RFID tickets have been around long enough. We see guests that have never seen anything but that. And that was, right. that was a little <laughs> shocking and obviously haven't seen a wicket and, and a sticker pass, but just people that have never seen anything but RFID. And, and again, that's kind of a, a function of the the different demographic that we're servicing now. And it's not just Beaver people that we're, we are, um, entertaining up there but um, really I think as long as Marge is selling tickets we will be using those and it, it's it got its challenges as far as you know in the maze and checking tickets you kind of get in scan mode um, but it's fine it works works well and some people really appreciate it and love to see it but we we do find ourselves having our guest service folks help people put their passes on because, and it's always been interesting, but you'll see somebody with a sticker just plastered on top of their hat or their helmet or their coat. (laughs) And we have to start over and show them how that ticket works because they're, uh, they're going away and a lot of people just haven't seen them, but, um, but it works okay. And we, we will eventually move to an RFID day ticket, but, uh, it's probably going to be a few years.
1: Well, tell Marge I very much appreciate her as an industry champion of the metal wicket ticket because I am a huge fan of those and I hope they never go away for good. Uh, Let's talk here, Travis, about Cherry Peak, which is one of the newer ski areas in the country opened in 2015. It doesn't sound like it's really dented your business at all, but let's just go back here. What was your reaction when you heard that another ski area would be opening in what is already kind of a small market? And that looks, at least on the map, a bit closer to and easier to get to from Logan than Beaver Mountain.
0: Yeah, there's no question the proximity. You know, we really haven't had, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, say competitors, but we're we're just far enough away from Ogden. You know, really the, our closest neighboring ski area has been Powder Mountain and Snow Basin geographically, but strictly for locals. You know, and we definitely have folks from from up here that that ski down there, um, but it's it's a little more committing than you know the drive to Cherry Peak, and and frankly, it was a little shocking when when Cherry Peak appeared on on the horizon, just because I think we know how difficult what they were attempting to do is, and you know, there's a reason there haven't been a lot of startup skiers in this country in the past twenty five years, because um, it's a very challenging thing, and you know, I think they learned a lot in their first couple of years, things they didn't know they didn't know yet. And, you know, we kind of said internally, you know, you're starting five or six businesses rather than one, um, mm-hmm. right. You know, between the food and beverage side and ski school and all these other departments. And, you know, they are a little lower elevation ski area, which in this day and age is obviously a challenge. But, um, one thing they, they do have that we do not is snowmaking, which I mm would be essential for their location, I think. Um, and I, I don't think it's really pulled any numbers away from us. One area that I think it, it has that cherry peak has affected our operation a little bit is night skiing. They have a, a large night skiing footprint and the, the proximity to town, you know, obviously makes that, um, very appealing for people that can go up and, and get a few runs in at night. Um, and that's probably the biggest, effect we've seen on our operation. It's kind of been interesting that we've always kind of viewed us as somewhat of a feeder resort in a small ski area. And now they kind of play that role for us. And I think, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I think all ski areas are good. And I think there is room in this market for that. And as, as people maybe start their journey at Cherry Peak and, you know, they have a very affordable program there. And then, you know, we're maybe looking to move to a little bigger hill down the road. Um, we definitely are very supportive of their operation and have have tried to help in, in any way we can because we understand the challenges. And obviously when they were first announced, there was a ton of buzz here locally and everybody was really excited and maybe didn't appreciate the realities they were going to run into as well as, as we did. But, um, they're still here and that's impressive, um, because what they have tried to do without a lot of experience in this world, in their operation. And and they've, uh, I think, learned learned a lot and maybe some things they didn't want to know um, about how glamorous the ski industry is. But, um, you know, it's good to see them still be
1: viable. And, uh, and we definitely support what they're doing and wish them well. All right, Travis, let's shift gears and talk about Beaver Mountain now. So you mentioned earlier that Beaver is on Forest Service land. And you also mentioned that, you know, you're starting to think about the ski area growing is there any potential for a terrain expansion in the future
0: so actually we were on forest service ground and we were now on utah oh. state trust land property
1: oh interesting
0: so prior to the 2002 olympics in utah there was a large land trade statewide between uh, sitla properties and federal property with really the more economically viable properties going to Sitla and somehow they came to an agreement over, I think it was 13 million acres uh, statewide, mm, wow. which Jeez. you know was pretty key for some of the development of Snow Basin at that time. And so we actually, our permit is 100% on Sitla property now, which um, overall is a really good thing. Um, we do pay more for that opportunity, but Um, frankly, we had a lot of scary operators asking and talking to my dad about how do we get in on a land trade? Um, it's just a little more efficient at times working with the state than, you know, the machine that is the forest service. And we, we definitely did that for a long time when I was a little younger and, you know, it worked out fine, but overall working with the state has been, been a, a positive. And so we have our permit area, I think is just under. 1200 acres and there actually is quite a bit more Sitla property adjacent to the ski area that I think would be available it's not necessarily what I would consider you know ski terrain but there is a lot of area in the bottom that is available for development either by by Beaver Mountain or outside entities Sitla would love to do that the the real function of SITLA is to make money for education for the state of Utah. And that is their fiduciary duty that they maximize these properties potential. And they have been a, a great partner with us. And, um, you know, if we do well, they do well. So they they have realized that and have, have helped us with these small expansions that we've done. Um, but to be honest with you, as far as kind of a, a no-brainer spot that I would love to put a lift or that we always think, oh, I wish we could ski there. I don't know that we really have that as far as new terrain. Um, There is some that, and I I think we're really picky. Beaver Mountain is very very much a fall line ski area with a lot of downhill. It's a lot of skiing for what you see on a map and what uh, I think the perception of of beavers that it's smaller until you ski it because we do cover a lot of terrain without a lot of chairlifts and it works. But I think there probably is more room to maybe you know, add some uphill capacity within the current ski area just to spread people out. But we also are very cognizant of that experience on the mountain and we do not want to overcrowd that. Um, We don't have any high speed chairlifts at Beaver. Everything is fixed grip. And I think there is room for some additional capacity and some additional runs. But kind of the problem with some of the adjacent areas that we could expand into is aspect and somewhat slope. But, The thing that really, really sets us apart and I think saves us a lot is our exposure is almost all cold. We have very few sunny sides, just a couple small areas, and some of these areas that we could expand to that have pretty decent terrain um, are sunny sides, which is becoming more challenging and would require snowmaking at some point. But we will see down the road. We definitely need to spread a few people out. But as I mentioned earlier, I think the mountains still handling our numbers fairly well. Everybody would always love to see new terrain, and we we have a few ideas in mind, and I think I sometimes need to lower expectations because our current runs are are really good, and they they just go down, and I love fall line skiing, and I think that's kind of a calling card at Beaver.
1: So in relation to the current trail map, where are these potential terrain expansion areas at? Um, So if you look,
0: uh, kind of lookers right, the north side of the mountain, um, the area that Marge's triple services. We do have some acreage out that direction towards the Idaho border and even a little behind the next drainage to the northeast. And the way our aspects face, there are, I think, potential for quite a few runs over there, although really... You know, you can get to that from the current margins triple, but it, it does require a lot of traversing and and cruising around that side beyond Sour Grapes area. But then even back beyond what our trail map really shows, kind of a little more to the west, there is, it's not a lot of vertical, but there is some good um, aspects back there with decent pitches that are more in the eight or 900 vertical foot range. Um we do have a rather robust backcountry that is on the south side of the ski area that um, a lot of people will ski to the highway, or we do have a, a skate trail behind our little beaver chairlift that uh, is called the spring road, which used to be way before my time where the ski area got its water. There's actually a small spring at the end of that road. And it's not, not an improved road that we use for anything, but it does provide a way back into the ski area from the backcountry And, it is heavily used back there. But again, a lot of that is uh, kind of a sunny exposure. And also some of these areas, the reason they are so cool and they're so fun is because there's not chairlifts there. And right. I think this goes back to I said recently. I feel like we make a lot of bad business decisions at Beaver Mountain okay, um, for the sake of the ski experience and some things. You know, we right. obviously could charge more money for some of the things we do. But we like the, the sport to be accessible to people and be able to do that. But I think even, you know, an area like that, or there is a lot of fantastic tree skiing. We have great tree skiing at Beaver mountain that we could add a lot of, of cut ski runs in those areas, but kind of hate to see that tree skiing go away. You know, and some of it right. is kind of inevitable down the road, I think, because there is a lot of, of area, even inside where we currently ski where we could add more, you know, either groom ski runs or, or as I mentioned cut areas, but Part of that is also basically on our south border and west border, uh, that is the forest service border as well. And so that's kind of a whole nother can of worms to move on to the federal property and the permitting process, whether that is actual chairlifts or just skiing over that ground. But those would be the areas. And as I mentioned, there's nothing that, you know, we've always really wanted to, to put a lift into, but, um, if if we can get some snowmaking eventually, that would make that
1: a little more feasible. So you mentioned Travis that you think there's room for more uphill capacity within the current footprint. Are you thinking new lifts in new places or upgrades to current lifts? What's your wish list? What do you have in mind? Um, probably a little of both.
0: Um, I think you know maybe a another chairlift on the north side of the resort, either over on that Marge's side, or there is a little sub peak in there called Lone Pine between the Harry's side and the Marge's side, which is hike two terrain. It's not a long walk, but it's, there's some great runs off of there that uh, you can actually go both directions with a, you know, a 35 degree pitch off of both directions. And the one side is a little more sunny and, you know, on a good average winter, we can ski sunny sides, no problem. Um, You know, they obviously get cooked a little quicker, but we can hold snow in those areas But I think also the uphill capacity to an extent, keeping in mind that um, experience of not having too many people on the mountain. But, you know, Harry's Lift is our workhorse lift. And, you know, could see at some point, you know, possibly a detachable lift, but definitely, you know, maybe a quad of some sort there. And with some of this other expansion, our Beavers facelift only runs on weekends currently as essentially a people mover because it is redundant terrain that is accessible from Harry's dream lift. Um, but with some of this, some of the plans that we have for the base area, it may, just for a convenience factor, I think the facelift could play a a pivotal role in that and that is our oldest chairlift. So, um, it definitely could use some love and, you know, possibly that one I, I could envision more as possibly a fixed triple. Um, and a modernization of that lift and kind of the, the location of the terminal. And there's been some discussion about that with uh, this bigger master plan for the base area. But, you know, to that question, I think a little of both. I think we can have a little more capacity in where we're at. And we've we've kind of done that across the board. We've upgraded a couple of our doubles into triples. And then adding the margins triple areas really helps spread people out and give us some hill storage.
1: Yeah, talk about that expansion, Travis. And, and I don't know if this was a coincidence, but you were talking about all of the land swapping and everything that was done around the Utah Olympics, which were in 2002. And in fact, that's when that second peak opened. So just talk about how long you'd been intending to do that, what it took to do that and bring that used lift in, which I believe was a, a lift from Keystone, and, and how that's changed the experience of being at Beaver Mountain. Um, you know, it's obviously been there for a while now, but it's still (laughs) the
0: impact that it has is amazing. I mean, just one more chairlift and the new terrain is, is great. A lot of people prefer that side of the mountain. The vertical isn't Mm -hmm. quite as good. I don't think the fall lines are quite as good, but Mm -hmm. it's a little quieter over there. Um, and it really had been in the works, I think forever, (laughs) to be honest. when I go back through and look at old plans and and see plans prior to me really being involved. Um, it was interesting when we we ended up determining really the exact location of the chairlifts and some of the runs. And this was without looking at these old plans. And and they really mirrored what they were thinking about in, in those times, you know, even oh, wow. in the 80s. But it, it's kind of a no brainer. I mean, it, the terrain just kind of sets itself up for that. But I think one thing that was kind of critical in that at one point my dad really wanted to put a chairlift kind of below the current little beaver lift further down that drainage and kind of parallel on that side. And to be honest, we had a few loud discussions about that. Okay. He finally did admit, he came back and admitted that, you know, Jeff and I who felt strongly about the marges triple area were right, but we did change kind of the plan that they had always thought of, of, of coming up from the very bottom of the drainage rather than going up over the top of what is our, our dead horse run. But it it shortened the power run and the road building by, you know, over a mile and a half, which was a pretty big deal. Um, a lot of expense. The, the bottom of that drainage below where the bottom terminal is is really nasty. And, you know, it's definitely doable, but it would have required a lot more to push up from the bottom. And I think once we sold him on the idea that we could come, from the current base area up and over, it made it a lot more feasible with our budget and what we felt like we could spend on a project like that. And, um, hugely successful. We, uh, I think it really set in last year, our opening day, we opened quite late last year on, you know, the COVID operating year. And we opened on a Tuesday and we had 2,500 people show up on a Tuesday opening day, which at Beaver Mountain that's a lot of people. And we did not have Marges triple spinning. Generally, we open it slightly later just to get a little work done to get the train open. And it really showed what that lift meant to us by having it not open to that <laughs> amount of people there. Our line was longer than I have ever seen in my life. And wow. you know, part of that was due to the the capacity restrictions of COVID. And I don't think people appreciated what that was going to do to lift lines. But it uh, really showed us, you know, and once we got Marge's spinning a few days later, that relieved that situation. But um, I think that showed everybody just what that means to our crowds and hill storage and spreading people out and, you know, giving them that other experience in that other area. Um, and you you are correct. It is uh, uh, that chairlift for the most part. Um, was the Ruby lift also known as the teller lift from Keystone, which has a Mm -hmm. lot of history, obviously. Um, Most of the lift now is, is Doppelmayr where that was a yawn installation. And so we, we bought it from a guy that had purchased a bunch of those lifts after Bell came in. And so there's a little give and take with parts, but for the most part, that was the Ruby chair lift.
1: Okay. You have another legendary tri- chairlift at your mountain. The The Harry's Dream Lift is Alta's old Germania Lift. So just talk about the process of getting that lift up there and and what it's like to have that legendary lift on your mountain now. And, and just as you think to the future, is is used lifts probably the direction you're going to go in as you continue to evolve Beaver Mountain and expand uphill capacity?
0: Well, we kind of have been the king of uh... – frankensteining lifts and um
1: a lot of that really is
0: due even you know other engineers and ski areas are a little astounded at some of what we've done with used lifts but a lot of that is a, a tribute to the lift engineer that we've worked with on those projects joe Gemunder. um you know we we look at what looks like just a pile of steel and joe sees a ski lift in there and <laughs> You know, Marge's triple was modified heavily. It went from a a top drive to a bottom drive and reversed the direction, Um, bottom tension, bottom drive. And Joe also helped with the Germania chair. And we were looking at the time. And, you know, that season, there was a lot going on at Alton. You'd go to the parking lot and the New Angle Station is there. And the Collins Lift is in the parking lot and Germania is in the parking lot. And we'd gone down and inventoried everything and kind of finalized the plan, and then Alta got a three foot snowstorm in October. Oh, jeez! And we go back down to the parking lot, and all we see is piles of snow. And so oh, no. we have a chairlift here somewhere. <laughs> and actually, lost a few parts in the process that I'm not sure okay. if they ever turned up. Um, just <laughs> in some of the fab tower tops, different things like that. But uh, yeah, it, it obviously was a, a very legendary Wasatch ski lift and it was also a really nice used lift to buy because prior to Alta making the decision to put the angle station in they had upgraded Germania I think five years prior so you know we had pretty new carriers that we continue to use and we actually used those carriers on the little beaver lift because we had more than we needed um, for our line on on the dream lift and it's fun to show it to people that had ridden it as Germania a lot and to tell people from Alta that visit. Um,
1: yeah.
0: And it, it's kind of unique in that Alta, when Ano Varenga was the general manager there, he had basically designed an Alta chair. And I, I believe it's four inches wider than a standard C-Tech chair at that time. And it also has several degrees of more backward lean in the the backrest. And they're nice chairs. It's, it's a little challenging because a standard pad does not fit them. Everything on them is kind of custom, but uh, you know, you tell people that and they maybe didn't realize, you know, they had designed those that way at the time at Alta. And I think uh, Sugarloaf was the same way at Alta, but um, you know, there's, there's different <laughs> vintages of used chair lifts. And we, uh, we always tried to find the ones that had the least amount of work and right. And, and that one really was was nice for that purpose because it had been upgraded substantially you know prior to us installing it and as far as the future lifts um i don't know it's it's not always as cheap as people may think cuz there is a lot of work that goes into moving a lift to your profile and fitting your mountain um definitely some savings there but it it probably would depend on the market at the time i mean everything costs a lot of money now and you know, when we replaced Little Beaver, we did do a new install with a Skytrack chair, um, which was nice having. It was actually the first full installation of a Skytrack in North America or anywhere oh, wow. for that matter. But um, it was nice having a new chair lift, I will say that. <laughs> and <laughs> we have modernized a lot of those. I mean, we've replaced drives and low voltage controls on Germania and tried to keep things very current. And, and we, I think, have a strong you know, lift maintenance department and a good understanding of our chairs and, and very little downtime for a, a smaller ski area. But I guess that remains to be seen as we, we start shopping and looking for a new lift in the future.
1: So Travis, you've mentioned snowmaking a couple times here and that that may have a place in Beaver Mountain's future. Really interesting that you don't have any snowmaking today. Even Alta has a little bit at the base of their ski area as you're riding up the lifts in December. Um, so talk about your thinking on snowmaking long-term at Beaver Mountain and, and if that's something that we could see in the future.
0: Well, a little history and why, why I guess we don't, and it's not insurmountable, but we currently don't have any water. And mm. Several years ago, we drilled a couple holes over 600 feet deep and still didn't find any water. And we've had geologists and water witches, and there's some new technology out there. Um, You know, and it's kind of maddening. You invest a bunch of money trying to find water, and you may be 10 feet away. You may be 500 feet away. Um, And possibly an area by our current well that's changed with our lease a little bit, we may continue to look down there and we you know we have plenty of water to do what we're currently doing with the ski area but it would be a drop in the bucket for snow making and it hasn't been a huge issue it's definitely you know I think our snow quality shows that we don't make snow we hear it constantly and on a year like this you know people come up and say oh your grooming's better than such and such you know Pretty nice areas around Salt Lake, and it's like. Well, I think our grooming is good, but I think our snow is better. I think that's the difference, and you know, it's a trade-off. I definitely would love to have some snow guns at times, and but I think we see that on these down years, and we're able to to hold our snow, and we have a very, very good slope maintenance program. Our groomers are fantastic, and longer tenured guys that you know we're just really good at farming snow. We've done it for a long time, and that aspect helps us a ton. But you, you see a down year like this, you know, prior to this year opening, we were in a bad way and luckily the storms bailed us out. But that's when you really start thinking that investment makes a lot more sense and, you know, it would be a significant investment. I, I think it's probably inevitable down the road that, you know, we get at least a, a small snowmaking system for the lower part of the mountain. It's always the lower third, which I'm sure everyone can attest to. And mm-hmm. and again, a couple sunny sides, but, and maybe a little longer season, you know, we don't open real early typically, and that's never really been an issue, but it seems like that gets a little later all the time. And even on good snow years, years that we get, you know, really good snowfall, it just seems like it's a little later. And we've always kind of joked that we need to move Christmas back a month because that's the benchmark. <laughs> But, uh, you know, we find us opening mid-December versus when I was younger, we'd usually open right around the 1st of December with a good snowpack conservatively. So, you know, in the future, we do have some shares and and access to some water. We just need the physical water. So I think we'll continue to assess that and, and eventually put the investment in and drilling and actually finding that.
1: All right, Travis, let's wrap up today with a talk about passes. So your season pass just went on sale $375 $375 for the 2022 to 23 season. That is a very affordable product. Uh, talk about your pricing philosophy around your season passes and keeping them at those that price point, even as, as you said, you start to deal with some volume issues. Yeah, we, so I think we were pretty early to adopt
0: the uh, higher volume um, model. I'm, I'm sure you know, uh, you know a guy named Mike Shirley at, uh, Bogus base yep. and was the guy that kind of uh, did that. My dad followed suit shortly thereafter, and it was it was pretty scary, really. At the time, um, there were a lot of questions about how that model was going to work. Are people still going to buy day tickets? What if all these people show up on the same day? Now that we're selling thousands of season passes, yeah. and how much was your pass
1: before? I'm just curious.
0: Um, I believe we were close to $600. And then we went to $200. Wow. And it was a very small part of our business. You know, season pass holders were the skiers that skied a lot. It was very small percentage of our guests were on season passes where now, you know, that's upwards of 65% on a daily basis is riding on a season ticket. Um, So we've kind of just massaged those prices through the years and you're always looking for that sweet spot. Um, in our market, you don't want to go too high to where the bottom kind of falls out of that. And I know the early days of those passes, we always kind of thought nobody. What if they don't buy them this year? And they always did. And I think that was a learning experience. But they are actually three seventy five currently, um, with that progressively going up through the off season. And you know we'll top out at uh, five ninety I believe in the fall. And we actually sell quite a few of those if it starts snowing. And we have some debate with within our group. Um, you know, we did raise season pass prices two seasons ago, and I think there was definitely room to do that this year. We decided to write out another season at this price and, you know, reassess that, but it is definitely a volume model. And, you know, it was, uh, again, you know, a tribute to to Mr. Shirley's foresight. And I think that model is, been probably the biggest key to the growth of Beaver Mountain, to be honest. It's just worked out perfectly. We offered season rental leases early on in that. And we really brought a lot of families back into the fold. I think that, you know, you see people grow up skiing as a kid, you get in college and you eventually get married and real life hits. And that's when we see people kind of drift away from the sport. And it's usually your kids that bring you back. And that enabled <laughs> these families to get back in with the the cheaper kid passes you know, and a family could feasibly ski for seven or $800. And so we saw a lot of these people kind of come back to the sport that, you know, maybe wouldn't have. It's hard to say, but um, it's been a great thing for us. I think, you know, we will continue to assess those numbers. And it really has been part of, part of our ethos and idea that we want to keep it affordable to allow people to ski. We don't want to price people out of the, the business, but you make a great point about crowds and numbers and something's got to give at some point. And You know, that's one way of kind of controlling those numbers with, you know, possibly reservation systems or things down the road. But uh, that's kind of the philosophy at Beaver Mountain, and it has worked very well for us through the years.
1: You talked about the profile of Beaver Mountain increasing over the last few years. And I have to think that's at least in part due to your decision to join the Indy Pass, which is a national coalition. So talk about your decision to join that pass and how that partnership has worked out so far. Um, I think we were pretty early adopter
0: of indie as far as the numbers that, that Doug eventually achieved. And, um, I was actually at the NSA show in snowbird at snowbird and some guy at a booth yelling at me and why don't you return my calls? And I'm like, who is this guy? And I went over and it was Doug fish and, uh, yeah. I'd never met Doug. And, you know, I get a lot of emails and a lot of calls about people that can change your life and fix everything. And. <laughs> um, I'm trying to place him and we, you know, we had a conversation that day and followed up with it. And I think it was somewhat inevitable. Somebody was going to do something similar. And, um, you know, Doug kind of put this plan together and we, we liked the idea of it. And it's, uh, it's been really fun. We, I know the first year or two, we were the most searched resort on Indy and not, not the most redeemed because we were a little bit of an Island and it's, I think Doug has built it, you know, as a regional pass and he's definitely filled in some holes locally around us now. And so we've seen a lot more participation this year with Powder Mountain joining, Pomerel, even you know, Snow King in Wyoming. And so people have a little loop they can do now. And it, it's still not a huge portion of our visitation. And we did actually black out this year for everyone other than the Indy Plus because we we frankly can't handle our demand on weekends anyway. And right. So that's worked out really well. And this time of year again, you know, it's always the challenge midweek and March for, for small ski areas and local ski areas. And, um, you know, I think we've serviced like 49 States with Indy, which is super fun. Wow. A big portion of those being from the East coast. Oh, cool. So it's fun to be able to show your mountain to other people and, and get some feedback. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of people show up, say, I came here just because of you know, some of the marketing Indy's done and we like the concept you guys have had and the family-owned story and everything. And so that's been really fun to to show our place to other people. And again, it's not, not a huge portion of the numbers. I think as much as some of the guests may think because they've seen us grow. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not because of Indy and that's not the point. We don't want that to happen. But for those slower weekdays and in March, it's been, been a real boon for us and uh, definitely plan on continuing.
1: You do still have a couple of reciprocal partnerships with Diamond Peak, with Brundage, with Eagle Point, with Lee Canyon. I'm not sure if you're continuing those next year uh, or or if you've added partners or deleted any of those. But just talk about the logic of keeping those, which which means that Beaver Mountain Pass holders can go to those mountains to get free tickets and their pass holders can come to yours. So talk about why you've kept those relationships even as you have the Indy Pass model, which gives you a, a payout redemption for each skier visit?
0: Yeah, I don't know if there is a lot of logic behind it. Um, <laughs> you know, we had a, a pretty big list prior to Indy, and we're, we're working on on that. And it was really a nice boon for our pass holders. Um, and, you know, Indy, obviously, I think, would prefer that, that everybody is on that pass for, for understandable reasons. But uh, we've just kind of kept these around. Initially, when I was working on reciprocal agreements, my thinking was, you know, somewhat of a reasonable day trip. I mean, we've had tons of requests from areas all over the country and, you know, it looks good on, on the paper and you can advertise all those resorts you reciprocate with. But for me, it was more of a, a realistic expectation for our guests to, to take a day trip to McCall. Um and ski Brundage. And and some of these are a little further out, but they're not in the Midwest and the East coast. And, and that list is, is slimmed down considerably, but I think we've, we've kept them on. And I, I believe we're going to keep everyone that we're with now for next season. I, I haven't talked to one resort, but everyone else is still interested in doing it. And we get a lot of great feedback from our guests that it gives them an opportunity to go ski somewhere else. And, I don't know that we necessarily sell more season passes because of it. I don't think we probably do, but um, it is a nice thing for for some of our folks to be able to to travel and see another ski area. And the numbers are kind of surprising sometimes both on our end and, and the number of our guests that are going other places. But um, I think it's more of just a nice amenity for people that have, have supported us and bought our passes and, you know, strictly financially, it probably doesn't make sense, but, um, it's been appreciated by our folks.
1: Well, Travis, it sounds like you're evolving as the ski industry does. And i look forward to following your story into the future and hopefully getting out there and checking the place out firsthand for myself one of these days. So thank you very much for your time and insight and sharing your family story. It's really amazing. And I'm really excited to share this with everybody. So thank you.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, it's a fun story to tell and, uh, the door is, is always open. So um, hopefully next year we have a little more snowfall and you can uh, come get the tour.
1: That's Travis Seeholzer, third generation owner and mountain operations manager of Beaver Mountain, Utah. Travis, that was an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing your family's history and Beaver Mountain's history with all of us. I have to tell you guys, I think small ski areas are having a moment and what we just heard from Travis backs that up. I think the Megapass backlash is real and people are finding that vert and skiable acreage don't matter as much as having a tolerable day. So thank you all very much for listening. As always, lots of good stuff ahead. You will hear from the leaders of Beaver Creek, Snow Ridge, New York, Big Sky, summit at Snoqualmie, Ragged Mountain, New Hampshire, and Arapahoe Basin. In the meantime, if you want more storm, go visit stormskiing.com and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter, where I am exploring the world of lift-served skiing all year long. You can also follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.